Hi, I'm Sabrina and he's Marcus. And we are two of the founders of the Black Trail Runners. You can find us on Instagram at the Black Trail Runners. We're a community and campaigning group seeking to increase inclusion, participation and representation of black people in trail running. If something resonates with you, please let us know and share online. Also, leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected as it helps our podcast grow. Your support helps to make this podcast possible. Thank you for downloading this episode. Now, let's head to the conversation. The Checkpoint is supported by the North Face, whose fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966, to provide the best gear for their athletes and the modern-day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors, and inspire a global movement of exploration. Frit Tam is a British-born Chinese transgender filmmaker. Frit is an adventurer, climber, rollerblader, cyclist, stand-up paddleboarder, skier and hiker, to name a few. Frit is also the founder of Passion Fruit Pictures, an award-winning film studio whose aim is to add colour and diversity to the adventure industry through filmmaking. In 2021, Frit embarked on Glide for Pride, a 1,700-kilometre rollerblading and cycling challenge north to south across England to showcase LGBTQIA plus stories. Frit is in the process of creating a documentary around the challenge, and it will be the first film of its kind with a transgender East Asian protagonist highlighting the wealth of diverse voices the UK has to offer. Frit Tam, welcome to The Checkpoint. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now that we have sorted out the faff of where I'm going to do this interview in my house. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So podcast listeners behind the scenes, you know, stuff happens, life happens sometimes, internet doesn't perform as it's supposed to, and we have to adapt. But that's 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 life and that's adventuring, isn't it? Just a it, title it is, it is. Why did you not put that in my bio at the start? <laughs> Well, there was something actually that you had in your bio that I didn't, I I failed to mention. And I feel like now is the time. So I failed to mention that you love chips. Correct. There is a reason why I'm called Frit. No, that's not actually the reason. That is pure coincidence. <laughs> that would be, that would, that's excellent though. I think you should use that, that joke more often. Um, so my first question for you is, um, what are your favourite kind of chips and what are you having with them? With them? Oh, so I actually prefer fries to chips. I'm okay. not a big fan of like the fat chip. I much prefer like a skinny fry. And I'm also oh. not a fan of sweet potato fries. So I never get lulled into that sort of pay an extra three pounds for sweet potato fries. Just that upsets like, straight me a up. bit. Why? That upsets me a bit. Because I do, I do love a sweet potato fry, I have to say. But why? But why? Because they're delicious. And what what are we having the chips with? Are we having? Are we dipping them in marmite? What are we doing? <laughs> You're only asking me that because you know I love marmite. Yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. Although I've never tried that combination before, and maybe I will in future, and I will send not, you a report. Okay, I, I I look forward to receiving that feedback. <laughs> Uh, but I would say I'd be quite happy with just your regular garlic dip. Oh, uh, garlic dip. Good choice. Yeah. Or like a garlic and chive sauce dressing. Oh, maybe with some vegan cheese too. 
okay. But would just take fries on their own? They're not picky. Not really, as long as it's fries. As long as the fries are the main component of the dish. Yeah. I'll also take a wedge. Um, A a wedge, but not a chip. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, because I feel like the wedge is more purposeful. The chip is kind of just two fries stuck together. Do you just feel like it's kind of the in-between? Like it's not one thing, it's not the other. It hasn't decided what's going on. Perhaps. Maybe it was sort of the the wedge that had too much taken out of it. Mm, you know, understood. Understood. made into like a uniform shape. See, see, this is this is why people listen to this podcast. Just exactly <laughs> for this, this, this kind of content. This is what people are here for. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about you for it and less about chips unless you want to talk about chips um we are synonymous as we (laughs) (laughs) so we've established that you are an adventure filmmaker so what's your favorite adventure film doc that you've watched that's not one of your own you can't name your own yet you'll get an opportunity to plug your own soon (laughs) (laughs) uh good question maybe you should have sent me the questions beforehand no because then we don't get this like rapid fire off the top of your head yeah but the problem is is that we're not getting rapid fire now are we (laughs) we're getting hesitation (laughs) and thinking time (laughs) it's it's, it's, you know it's all it's all true this 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 podcast is all 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 about transparency so (laughs) take, take your time take your time okay um let me have a think so there is, I have to throw in Meru as one of them, uh, a Jimmy Chin film, because Jimmy mm-hmm. Chin is like my absolute idol. Um, What's Meru about? I haven't seen it. Don't look, I, I accept this is an audio format, but for everyone, Frit has just looked at me as if I've committed one of the seven deadly sins. So, sorry, I haven't seen it. Please tell us what it's about, Frit. I'm going to bring up its own description because i worry it won't i won't do it justice um so um assuming your internet works yeah i know actually it's working really quick now would you believe it um so it's about uh, jimmy chin um and so he did a route up merry peak uh which is in the himalayas um and it's just really beautifully shot uh because it's jimmy chin and he had also had a really well-known other filmmaker called Renan Ozturk on it, who is also like cinematically a beautiful visualizer. Um, and that was like I think one of like the first adventure films that I ever watched. So I think that's got a very special place in my heart. Um, but in terms of like, I feel like I want to pick. Oh, I want to pick something else as well. But I can't remember what You're it's allowed. called. Um, it's <laughs> it's a film by someone called Abby Barnes, um, and I really feel like if the editor can just cut out my pause for a sec, I'm going to Google that too. I'm so glad we're doing this on a computer, so that, uh, <laughs> I can, so that I can look it up um, rather than in person, and then I wouldn't be able. Oh, to sorry. Just... I thought I thought you meant as opposed to like on you know a wireless telephone or something like. <laughs> <laughs> or just like, <laughs> or you just like writing down my answer like an old fashioned yeah. journalist, or like those long um, paper cup, you know, the, like the cups with the string in the middle. One of those. 
<laughs> Can we do that next time? That would be good. Um, so uh, the other film I wanted to mention is called Rise Above the Fear by Abby Barnes. And it's about them going swimming, but how they have like a massive fear of water. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And it's like just this really like cool, really authentic film. Um, yeah. And it like is just super emotional and just really beautiful. And it's just, it's not sort of one of those... So I kind of feel like I gave Mary was like this really epic adventure film example. And I also felt then that I should sort of counter that and balance it out with another film that isn't sort of that same kind of narrative, but it's still just as important. Fantastic. Well, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to those two films as well so that everyone listening can can check them out. Um, changing pace slightly so by the way these, these are like our kind of icebreaker questions but I mean full disclosure we know each other so I feel like the ice has been broken but I quite like these, <laughs> these like these fun little questions because it's just a way of kind of getting to know someone who I already know a bit better um so my final icebreaker question was if you could be an expert at any skill that you don't currently have what would it be and why an expert at any skill I I would I mean now that we've just emphasized any skill maybe I should dream a bit bigger but um (laughs) (laughs) um, I've always wanted to know how to service my own van like like Like, I just I just want to have mechanical knowledge because I think that's a really cool bit of knowledge to have and also really useful so yeah when I was younger I wanted to be a mechanic and then never became a mechanic so that would be one of them that's a good answer that's a good answer and I feel like your van has been part of kind of your adventure filmmaking lifestyle as well that's true um and touch wood it hasn't broken down yet um although the alternator did go at one point and then it did break down um, for the most part it's been really reliable so I haven't had to sort of curse myself at not becoming a mechanic too many times but yeah <laughs> it's like a, van, it's, sorry no what were you gonna say I was gonna ask if the van has a name it does it's called Jean-Claude Van Tam because my surname's <laughs> Tam <laughs> that, that is amazing if people take nothing else away from this interview I hope that I hope that they appreciate just how amazing that name is <laughs> I mean we could I feel like we could end right here and that would we would we'd end things on a high thank you very much everyone for listening <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> love that so you you referenced um wanting to be a mechanic when you were when you were little so Let's go back to little, little Frit. Let's go back to little Frit. Um, and yeah, I mean, you do a lot of things in terms of your, you know, you're a climber, you're a rollerblader, you're a cyclist, a stand-up paddleboarder. I said all the things, you do all the things. So I was just interested to know how you got into sport as a child. Like, was it something your parents encouraged? Was it it's through school? Kind of how did, how did, how did you get into this big wide world of sport? Uh, so I... So firstly, like I see sport and the outdoors world as two very separate things. I don't know if you do. Mm. Um, but that's, that's, that's an interesting, yeah, distinction, actually. Say more. <laughs> more. Say more words. Um, so, Say more words. <laughs> um, so basically, I feel like when I was younger, I got into sport really young. And 
sport was just really sort of traditional sport in terms of tennis, hockey, football. Those were sort of my um, badminton. Those were my main sports when I was younger. Swimming was also in there, but I really hated it at the time. So I got into sports at a really young age and then that was sort of my thing. But the way that I view sports and the outdoors and outdoor activities are that sports kind of happen in a really constrained, restricted environment. And the outdoors activities allow more freedom um, and sort of orient orient themselves sort of around an idea of exploration. And I don't think you really get that in sports. So I kind of feel like I grew up around rules and you know, ways that things are done and playing within leagues and having this sort of winning competitive mentality. So then moving into the outdoors where there almost are no goals and well, you don't have, I mean, there can be, but you can also just sort of have, like I said, this, this sort of air of freedom and an exploration instead. And that, when I started moving into that, I found that actually really jarring I was like, why would you walk this distance if not to do it in the fastest time? No, like, <laughs> why would you, why would you do it then? <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, so to answer your question, I got into sports really young and then around university time dropped everything because the most active I was being was going out every night and then the gym at my uni the air conditioning system was one fan in every corner of the room so I thought I can't even let's go to the gym here and so that all of my sort of active life disappeared until probably my mid-20s when I accidentally discovered hiking and then that sort of led me into the outdoors world and I kind of have dabbled a little bit in going back to sports but not really I sort of left sports behind a bit how do you um, accidentally discover hiking? You get asked by a friend to do a 100 kilometer hike. And then you say, I can't do the 100 kilometer hike because I'm actually going traveling for three months. So I won't have time to train. So I'll sign up to the 50 kilometer hike instead because really how hard could it be to walk 50 kilometers? And then you do the 50 kilometers in the slowest time possible because you took way too many pictures and you stopped too many times. And that, but you, at the end of that fifty-kilometer hike, you realise how great hiking is, and that's how you get into hiking accidentally. I, I love how you were like hundred k is too much, but fifty k is doable. <laughs> that's totally, that, that sounds completely reasonable off the back of no training. Where was where was the fifty k hike? South Downs Way. Oh, so yeah, pretty scenic. Scenic and quite hilly. <laughs> Yeah, surprisingly hilly. (laughs) I was like, it's on the coast, so it'll be mostly flat, no? But no. Um, But it was amazing. Like, it was was the first time when I realised that you could do something to to clear your head in a way that wasn't about reaching some kind of destination or goal. And that was like, that was sort of a game changer, I suppose, at the time, which was really cool. But also I had no one to tell because I was like, I didn't know any hikers at the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was saying this, I was telling them all, I was telling my friends at the time all about hiking and they were like, cool, yeah, that sounds really good. And I'm like, no, like you have to come hiking with me and then you'll see what I mean. And eventually like all my friends got into it and everyone I know now pretty much hikes. Um, 
But yeah, at the time, I just remember being like, I don't know any other hikers, so I don't know, I don't know how to go on more hikes. And actually, think about that now; it's really weird. Like a time when I didn't know how to hike. But it's not it's not that weird, right? I mean, again, it's about where you grew up and who who you grew up around and what's kind of normal within your family and around within your friend group. Like if you if you didn't go out hiking at the weekend or do Duke of Edinburgh or whatever it is, then it's just not part of your world, right? Yeah, that's really true, actually. So Duke of Edinburgh wasn't offered at my school. You had to go through an external provider. And at the time I was like, why would you want to do that? That sounds rubbish. Why would I carry all this manky kit with me for a couple of days and then sleep out in a forest? Why would I do that? So it just didn't like, no one was selling it to me as this cool thing and none of my friends wanted to do it. So yeah, there was no chance I was doing DV. Um, I feel like it was very much sold as um, it's good for your CV as opposed to it's this really awesome way of kind of getting to grips with the outdoors. Why do they sell it as a good thing for your CV? I have no idea. I've got to like a 14, 15 year old. Why would that like, why? Like at what point in the hiring process when you're in your thirties, does someone say to you, oh, so you did your silver D of E here. Interesting. Let me bump you up the list of people. <laughs> no, agreed. I, com- I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. <laughs> but I also agree with you, like not to rip you apart, um, but like it is ridiculous. You're totally right. Like that is something that in school they tell you to do. And at the time, everything is based around this supposed CV that you're going to compile in a few years time when you leave school. It's just like, it's just so weird. Like at what point do I ever recount the GCSEs that I got? I just like, yeah, no, it just doesn't I, mean, come I can up. barely remember. Yeah. Well, I guess that, I guess that plays into um, what I wanted to ask you about next, which is filmmaking. So how, how did you get into filmmaking? What did that journey look like? Was it something again that you were doing when you were younger? Did you study at uni? How did that all happen? So when I was about 17, I knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker, but someone told me it took years to make a film. And I was like, I don't have the patience for that. So I thought instead I wanted to make music videos because I was like, you can probably make those quicker. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like a three minute music video compared to an hour and a half long film. So uh, I sort of segued into it a little bit by I decided that I was going to do an animation and visual effects course at uni and thought I was going to work in post-production and film still meanwhile like thinking about maybe on the side I can make music videos um please tell me you made a music video and please say it's available to watch somewhere (laughs) I did actually but I don't (gasps) know where it is (laughs) what was the song I can't remember what the song's called but I do remember the artist but I don't want to name them in case they're like really embarrassed by that video (laughs) Okay, I've made two me- music videos. I've just realised I've made two. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can, you, yeah, you can tell me. You can tell me off air, and we can decide whether or not you want to include the link <laughs> in the show notes. It can be a surprise for everyone. Exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, so I was doing my university degree, and then I realised I really didn't want to get into post production and film. I wanted to be involved in the actual shooting of films and there was a cinematography module and 
another module called acquisitions at uni where they basically taught you how to use camera equipment. So that's mm-hmm. how I started sort of getting into learning how to shoot. And then after I left uni, I applied for jobs at video production companies. And then for years, I worked in corporate video, which okay. is kind of like filmmaking, but not. And so, <laughs> like, and what kind of corporate videos are you making at this point? Uh, all sorts. So like I do event videos, I do promo videos for companies, I do... Company, uh, I do videos where like there just be internal videos where the CEO wants to talk to the rest of the company and we just shoot them on a green screen and then just change the color of the green screen to some color that they liked. Um, <laughs> but like the real sort of point where I was like, I think I need to come out of corporate video was when I was making a video with a brick making company. And I was like, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? Is film people talking about bricks and like the thing is though right is that if you really think about it bricks actually kind of changed a lot of things to do with society I've had this conversation with someone before about like clay like how important clay has been to society and therefore sort of how important bricks have been so that we can build the buildings that we have and our homes Mm -hmm. But at the time, I wasn't really channeling that energy. I was more like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my life filming people who tell me about things that I kind of don't care about. Um, yeah. So. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to sort of put bricks down, you know. <laughs> As I said, yeah. bricks have played a really important part in our historical evolution um but yeah so then I started to segue away from that and started to dabble a little bit in outdoors filmmaking and I filmed this long distance cycling race from the north of Wales to the south of Wales and it was so hard that I was like oh (laughs) I don't know if I can do this (laughs) So were you were you the solo filmmaker on on this project? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I had so one of the cyclists, their dad was driving as a support crew, and they just basically drove me to different locations so that I could intercept the riders along the race. But also the dad told me that because they were driving, that I couldn't sleep at the same time as when they were driving, because then like that would be unfair as the passenger. And I was so tired. I was like, yeah, but you just get to sit in the vehicle. I have a lot going on here with the filming and thinking about future shots and what I've already shot. And I was also editing stuff at the time. But yeah, so I was banned from sleeping as the passenger, which I thought was really unfair because I could have really done with a power nap. <laughs> how, so how long, how long did it take? How long were you, were you, how long were you in this car not sleeping for, being told that you're not allowed to sleep? <laughs> to be fair, it was only a few days. So it wasn't like, I mean, it's Wales, isn't it? So you can cover that relatively quickly. Um, but at the time, because it was my first sort of foray into outdoors filmmaking, it was just brutal like it was amazing but it was brutal and I wasn't really sure how to make that sustainable and actually I guess to a degree sometimes I sort of question it now (laughs) like (laughs) how do I make this sustainable now (laughs) yeah yeah I think that's a question a lot of people ask themselves um I mean the thing the thing with like adventure filmmaking is that 
and I appreciate maybe some people do do this, but it's very hard to say to people, okay, yeah, I know how you're like cycling from the north, south of Wales and that's really hard and stuff, but I just, I, I missed that shot. So could you just go back and I'll do it and, 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 and we'll do it again and I'll, I'll make sure to get it this time. Like you don't really generally um, imagine get that opportunity. So you have to be ready to get the shot when it happens. Otherwise you don't get it. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of like capturing a wedding. So you can't really ask them to walk up the aisle again. There are certain things you just can't make them do twice. So oh. <laughs> that that filming that race was a real trial by fire introduction to having to get things right first time. And to a degree, I actually think I did relatively well considering it was my first shoot of that kind. But I do just remember coming away from it and just being just really, I think, well, exhausted, but also really just mentally overwhelmed and sort of wondering how anyone makes a living doing this. <laughs> and so what happened to that film? Did you sell it? Did you show it? What 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 was the outcome of that film? Yeah, the um, race company used it as promo for the next year and actually it's now become this huge thing. So they've set up endurance races all across um, the UK Um and like it's just really nice to see that the company's still going and now they've got films made of <laughs> a really really top notch quality with like world class cyclists and every sort of every time that they bring out a new film or a new video about a race that that they've put on i watch it and i always think back to my little video that i made for them back in 2017 <laughs> it That's wasn't amazing, quite it wasn't quite comparable that's amazing though but as you said it was your first foray and for that to have well a opened up for you this whole world and b clearly it worked out for them the cycling company so I mean sounds like it was a win-win I hope so yeah I haven't heard from them since so we'll see (laughs) no actually I did I did bump into the uh, race organizer like a a year or two later and they were very nice so I think everything's good So I mentioned um, in your bio, Glide for Pride. And I mean, I, I, I skipped over it pretty pretty quickly. I mean, in, sum, it's, in summary, it already sounds amazing in summary, 1,700 kilometres. I can't quite get my head around that. But can you just tell us a bit more about it, like what it is, what it involved, how, just how, and <laughs> just how? That's my question. <laughs> how? <laughs> for now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean well tell us just about Glide for Pride tell us tell us tell us everything about Glide for Pride <laughs> um how long have we got so <laughs> <laughs> so Glide for Pride started off as a submission to an adventure grant that I wanted to try and win obviously and mm-hmm. this grant would go towards making it towards sort of funding a portion of the of the trip and sort of making it a bit more feasible. And I kind of wanted to pitch something that would be maybe a little bit outlandish so that perhaps I'd be in with more of a chance of winning. And I couldn't think of, at the time I remember I was sort of, I think I've only worked two full-time jobs um, for somebody else as in sort of being full-time employed twice. Now I was working in the second um, full-time job, sat at my desk doing my application um, I'm sure they won't listen to this podcast. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, 
I was filling out my application and I was looking at ways in which I thought that I could travel the country. And I knew that I wanted to travel around England and I had this sort of idea around I wanted to share LGBTQIA plus stories around the country because from a selfish point of view, I just wanted to know them. I just wanted to know more about the community, more about the people in the community, the work that they were doing. And just for myself, just educate myself. And I just kind of needed a form of transport to do that. And I felt sort of relatively proficient on a bike. I mean, not massively, but I could ride a bike. So I thought, well, I'd probably be fine. Um, But I wanted to uh, sort of attach something to it that would make it, I don't know, make it sort of a bit more unique and also challenge myself a bit. So then I stumbled across rollerblading marathons and I was like Googling people who do rollerblading marathons. And I realized if you can do a marathon, that means you can cover some serious distance in rollerblades. So I put that in, in my application and was like, I'm going to rollerblade and cycle around England and share LGBTQIA plus stories from across the country. And I submitted it thinking, this is kind of a bit of a stupid idea. So I don't think they're going to pick it. And then two months later, one and a half months later, they got in touch with me, said I'd won. I was one of three winners that year. And I was kind of like, oh, amazing. Someone thinks that my idea is good, which is really cool. But also then I realized that by winning the grant, it meant I had to do the trip. So (laughs) (laughs) so then there was kind of this dichotomy of yay and ah, crap. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then I started sort of sort of planning it in a sense of, well, where am I going to go and how am I going to do this and how am I going to plan it? But then COVID hit. So then I was meant to do my trip in 2020 and there was just no way that I was going to be able to do it in that year. So then it got delayed to 2021, which I was kind of grateful for because actually in 2020, I definitely wasn't ready to do it. And thinking back on how big the trip was in terms of the logistics and in terms of what it meant to me and in terms of what it could mean for other people, I definitely wasn't in a place to be able to do it justice in 2020. So I was super grateful that it got pushed back a year, but because I'm a huge procrastinator, I didn't actually learn to rollerblade until the 1st of January, 2021. Oh, wow. Wait, so hold on, hold on. So sorry. When you submitted, I have so many questions, but I'm, I'm, I'm forcing myself to just narrow down on one. When you submitted your application saying, I know I'm going to cycle and rollerblade because rollerblading makes, you know, it kind of makes it a bit, bit different. You didn't actually know how to rollerblade. No, I literally couldn't rollerblade at all. Wow. I hadn't even okay. worn a pair of rollerblades. I think the closest I got to rollerblading was ice skating. And I'm not you, very good at it. But you've seen people do rollerblading marathons, which I didn't even know that was a thing. So that's amazing. And thought, okay, I could do that. Yeah. I mean, they made it look easy because they're real good. <laughs> wow. Okay. I- <laughs> I feel like you really buried the lead there, not having learned how to how to rollerblade. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So then, so, so how I, did you how did you learn? Like, how did you develop that fitness? How did that all happen? Uh, part of it was YouTube. <laughs> so <laughs> joy of YouTube. So uh, the very first day I went out, I watched a couple of YouTube clips on how to start rollerblading, which were really helpful. But what I didn't realise is that I should have probably actually watched um, a YouTube video about how to put them on. 
So I didn't think that was going to be an issue. Yeah. There's sort of a certain, like, there's a certain way that you should put them on and adjust them to your feet. And I didn't know that. So I was just kind of faffing and (laughs) working it out on the spot. (laughs) Did you learn how to stop from the YouTube video as well? Did you watch one to start? So actually, I had a really good tip from a friend of mine who said, put them on and do your very first day in a sort of children's playground where they have soft oh, yeah. flooring yeah good idea so um so i that's where i sort of went for my first couple of days was children's playground with really soft flooring and because it was sort of made out of this rubbery material it was actually it had loads of stick to it so there wasn't actually any point in which I was sort of rolling away persistently and couldn't find a way to stop. <laughs> the floor itself actually sort of brought me to a stop with the friction. So that was quite okay. helpful. Okay. Um, but no, I didn't learn to stop until, I don't know, I'm tempted to say like day 10. Wow. Of the actual challenge or of just no, learning? No, it loved learning. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank goodness. Okay. Wow. That's intense. Okay. And presumably, I mean, so 1700 kilometers is a really long way. And I appreciate you weren't doing the whole thing rollerblading. You were, you were um, doing some cycling as well. But I imagine that like, there's a lot of like chafing issues with the rollerblades. Like, were you getting like blisters on your feet and like, yeah. Um, Good question. So no, I didn't actually. I, I did get, I did get sore bits on my feet. But that was more just, I think, from just my feet getting used to the shape of the rollerblades. And I don't actually, like, I don't know if rollerblades are that good for your feet. Because <laughs> um, they're quite sort of rigid. <laughs> they're quite rigid, um, certainly underfoot anyway, which you'd expect. But it just means that obviously it has no give. Mm. So... Um, I sort of put insoles in there that I knew would work well for me in general. But I did find that like the arch of my foot would ache lots if I was just standing around a lot. And actually being on the move was better than if I was standing around for a bit. For example, if, I don't know, if someone was talking to me and asking me what I was doing or we were filming some bits and pieces and then actually sometimes I would sort of go, back and forth just to try and get some shots then standing around really made my feet ache but Mm. yeah in general no I didn't I didn't get blisters and stuff which I'm quite grateful for actually how did you decide how to split it up as well between the rollerblading and the cycle were you like just doing alternate days or how did it work so in the end I ended up rollerblading far less than I wanted to number one because of time Mm. so I had a real sort of time pressure to get the whole trip done in 70 days. Um, And then the other thing was around, so basically the form of skating I was doing is called street skating. I didn't know this until I was like on the trip. Um, And it all started to piece together in my head where I realized that I was probably doing the hardest form of skating there is, which is obviously when you're, if you're skating in a skate park where the tarmac is flat and smooth, you're pretty good. And you're only mm-hmm. ever going a short distance at a time, really. Whereas I wanted to skate on pavements and sometimes roads if there weren't pavements. 
And I didn't realise just how much of a variation there is in concrete surface. And a lot of the concrete in this country is kind of rubbish. So Yeah, the pavements are really, really rubbish. Yeah, so then there was one pavement in particular, one pavement and one bit of road outside my parents' house where I was like learning at the time that was just utter trash, just so bad and really bad for like beginner's confidence. So I'd go out and also my parents' drive is on an angle. So like the first thing I got to do is like roll downhill towards the neighbor's front garden, try and veer left. But then as you veer left, there's a drop curb into the road. So you kind of got to not go into the road and then you're kind of fine for a little bit and then there's another drop curb into the road which you kind of want to do to cross the road but the concrete is so broken up that you can't skate on it so you just stick so if you're going if you're going too slowly you kind of have to either do it really really quickly to have the momentum to go over it or you end up just walking (laughs) so you just like you just sort of pick your feet up and walk across it um i'm guessing i realized there as well uh yes so then to go back to your question i ended up so a a lot a a really big part of my logistics was to look at the terrain on commute and see where the flat bits were then go onto google street view and see if there's pavements and then i'd know if something was rollerbladable or not and then by the end of the trip it just became such a huge issue with the trip and timings that I ended up just having to just do really small sections um, near where interviewees lived because then I knew that if they were in residential areas the chances are they had pavements and so I ended up just doing sort of small chunks around there at one point I met an interviewee in a park near the house and just ended up doing a loop around the park in my rollerblades just to get some skating in that counts I think so. I mean, the fact is, like, I did do a hell of a lot less skating. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was always going to be a mix, right? <laughs> it was always going to be a mix, right? It was, it was, it was the plan had always for it been, been for it to be rollerblading and cycling, and you did that. I guess so. Yeah, I think that's just a part of me that's still grumbling a little bit about how little skating I ended up doing. But having what having like rewatched the footage because I'm logging the footage at the moment for the for the dock, um, it makes me really want to go and skate, which is really weird because actually by the end of the trip I was like, I'm hanging these skates up, <laughs> and if I see them again, it'll be too soon. Um, but having yeah rewatched a lot of the footage, I'm like, oh, it'd be so good actually to get really good at skating. Be like, it just, there's something about it that I think would be so freeing. But I, I think I have to be good enough to get to that point where it's fun. <laughs> like, yeah, and a lot also, of the times you, when I was skating, it wasn't that fun. <laughs> yeah. And also, as you say, finding somewhere where you're not like skating directly over like a broken pavement into a road, because that doesn't sound fun. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, there were. Yeah, I basically didn't skate very well for pretty much all of the trip because I think I was just perpetually scared. And I remember I was skating with a friend of mine who knows how to skate but she didn't have skates at the time. So she cycled alongside me for a little bit. We were skating in the middle of this sort of quiet road. And she was telling me, you've just got to stop anticipating that things are going to go wrong. You just have to skate as if things are going to go right. And then you'll be able to skate well, which means that when something does eventually pop up that might go wrong, you're in a better place to deal with it as opposed to always bracing 
dreadful bad news which is really good advice but um I don't think I ever put it into practice (laughs) I feel like that's really good life advice to be honest not just like skating advice I think that's yeah if if, I think if we could put that into practice we'd all probably be much calmer happier human beings that's true actually I hadn't even thought about it for that application yeah really true so with the interviews that you were doing how did that work? How, how did you find these people that you wanted to interview? How did you know who, who, whose stories you wanted to tell? Um, so I knew I wanted to start in Newcastle and then work my way down. So I started mm-hmm. in Newcastle and ended in Brighton. So I knew that I had to find a few interviewees at the very least, if I just did a direct line down the country, then there were some sort of geographical locations that I could start just sort of, I suppose, either pinging emails to, getting in touch on social media, going into um, LGBTQ plus groups and asking if anyone was interested in being interviewed. There were some people that I knew I wanted to interview in terms of maybe I'd been following them online. And so I just used that as an opportunity to get in touch with them and ask. Um, And then once I started sort of accumulating some interviewees, it was then a case of just sort of patching in areas. So at one point I had lots of people up north, some people in the Midlands, um, very little sort of in the middle and then suddenly all along the South Coast. So mm. there were just areas that I needed to patch. And then through the people who either I was already interviewing or friends of mine just managed to then sort of find other people to be able to interview. But then it was also really important to me to try and sort of get as varied a scope of interviewees as possible in terms of sort of ethnicity and age and trying to tick off every single letter in the acronym of LGBTQIA and just trying to sort of be as representative as possible. So yeah, not only did I need to sort of try and hit as many locations as possible, because I also wanted to make sure that I didn't just interview people from the city I wanted to interview people out in the sticks and in rural areas there was also the case of yeah trying to make sure that I hit every letter in the acronym and tried to be as representative in terms of just you know people and everything that sort of makes us human as possible so thinking back on it when I say it like that I'm like how did I do that I don't know it just it just I'm questioning I'm I'm questioning how you did that because it's you know when you're also when you're talking about the difference between you know cities and and the the urban and rural environments I imagine that must have been quite challenging because as you say in urban environments there's just people of more diverse backgrounds in general that just kind of is, is 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 the way of urban environments and rural environments it's much harder to find that diversity so yeah I mean just just that that part of it I'm just thinking how how did you do that and I imagine it must have been pretty emotional as well speaking to a lot of these people yeah no yeah it was (laughs) (laughs) just massively Uh, downplaying it (laughs) um so a big part of my trip was around my mental health and actually re- from rewatching the footage I can see that I didn't start the trip in with the best mental health anyway and then as sort of almost 2 weeks into it I then like it's really it becomes really apparent that there are really big cracks starting to show and as the trip goes on my mental health just goes on this massive decline 
Um, and But a big part of that, a contributing factor to it was that everyone's story was so huge. So everyone I spoke to had a really important story and mostly always had some element of resilience or overcoming some kind of adversity that they had faced due to sexuality or gender identity. And everything about it was so relatable that I would come away from an interview feeling sort of reinvigorated in terms of sort of a bond with that person and the bond, my bond with the community, but drained in terms of emotions and sort of almost carrying the weight of their stories. And I didn't realize how big a toll it was taking on me until probably, I don't know, sort of the second half of the trip uh, where I was really starting to question why I wasn't functioning very well. And I realized I'd not left myself any breathing room between hearing these people's stories and then jumping straight on the bike or getting into my skates and then moving on to the next part of some kind of logistical part of the trip. And there was just no time to process. I just gave myself zero time to process anyone's stories, even my own during the trip. And so all of it was just sort of bubbling away in the background. And then it would sort of surface if there were any changes or sudden changes in the trip um, or anything to do with sort of lots of decision-making. I just couldn't do it. There came a point where I just could not make any more decisions. Things just had to go by the schedule. And if it didn't happen, it didn't happen, but I just had no capacity anymore to, to, to change anything or, make any decisions about anything that's that was like the wildest time like I've never reached that stage before where I just had reached max capacity and my brain was just like no so yeah yeah literally done um I've never had that before I think I've gotten really close but I don't think I've ever had it where my brain has sort of hit the red button and just checked out well first of all thank you for talking about that I appreciate you being so open about it I know it's not easy to talk about um but yeah we really appreciate you also I'm not surprised because it's such a huge thing that you did I mean aside from the physical aspect of it as you were saying like listening to all these people's stories which I'm sure there was a lot of as you said adversity and I imagine things that were very hard to hear and coming to grips with that and then also kind of dealing with your own journey through that and also being focused on creating a documentary I mean you 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 were dealing with a lot and as you said kind of not giving you know having to do it in 70 days meant that you just hadn't given yourself any time to kind of take yourself through it so I mean I'm so sorry that you got to that place, but it sounds like it, you know, it was almost inevitable. But now that you you kind of can look back on it, you go, actually, yeah, I can totally see why this happened. But um, yeah, it's sort of, you know, I'll rewatch the footage and I'm like, duh, obviously, what are you doing? Just take a moment here, please. No. Okay. Off you go. (laughs) You're just watching a car crash waiting to happen. It's like some of the footage is really difficult to watch, actually. Um, just sort of watching me back is mm. a really interesting process. And some of it is so hard because I can see that I'm making things more difficult for myself. But at the time, I just had no coping strategy. So 
well, I did, but I ignored it. Um, so it's just, it's a really like all of it, this whole process from sort of the conception of the idea to now when I'm making the film, the whole journey is just wild. The whole thing. It's unlike anything else I've, I've ever done. Yeah, it's mad. So when you finished, when you, when you, when you got to Brighton and you finished, I know that you haven't finished the doc that you're, you're going through it now, but did you then give yourself some breathing space? Yes, uh, but there is a clip. You're always busy. You're always busy. Yeah. I know. <laughs> There's this uh, bit of footage where uh, me and Frankie, my girlfriend, were sat on the sofa, and she's talking to me. I was sort of about my scheduling. I can't remember if this happened. I think this happened midway through the trip. And we're talking about how much time I've got after the end of the trip and the next shoot that I had. And I'd given myself three weeks, um, <laughs> um, but which I thought would be sufficient because I thought I'd come off the end of the trip and be like physically tired, but just like, ah, oh, like I've achieved this huge thing and I'm just going to be riding on the wave of success. Um, so three weeks I thought was just going to be a really, well, <laughs> I was going to say sufficient. I thought it was going to be ample time <laughs> to <laughs> recover from the trip. Um, and what happened was that, uh, I came off the trip in the worst mental health I've ever had. So three weeks was nowhere near sufficient and I still had to do the following shoot, but that shoot, um, which is, um, of a woman called Freddie. She's in her, she's a middle-aged South Asian woman who took on the Pennine Way with very little hiking experience. Um, and that film is still sort of carrying on at the moment. It is amazing. Like she is a hell of a character. Um, that, that sort of process of filming, of filming the, that film actually to a degree sort of um, contributed quite a lot to sort of my healing process because throughout the trip, I'd sort of, sort of I guess hesitantly gave away um that filmmaking identity of mine to other people to film me um and so being able to sort of be back behind camera in a place that I felt really comfortable in on a new challenge that wasn't about me but was sort of about someone that I cared about and about someone's story that I cared about it just enabled me to pour myself into something that wasn't me for a while and, you know, whilst that kind of sounds like I was ignoring myself and what I needed, I think it also just enabled me to get some space because I spent mm. three weeks of my time wondering what was wrong with me and sort of questioning whether I'd done things right during the trip and and ultimately wondering if I could sort of call the trip a success. So being able to sort of take a step away and do something else for a couple of weeks that was really all encompassing a lot of the time. The Pennine Way is really savage. I mean, there's a reason why the spine race is, is on the Pennine Way. Um, so it really challenged me in ways that I really enjoyed. Um, and that sort of helped to, yeah, get me to a place where I could get some perspective. Um, but it took me ages. I think, I think I only really felt as if I'd recovered from the trip probably around Christmas time. Um, and I finished the trip mid July. So yeah, it yeah. took me like a long time, I think, to really sort of get to a place where I felt like I'd processed 
ninety percent of of the things that had happened on the trip, um, and was then in a place to be able to sort of go into post production for the film and not find watching all the footage really painful. Mm. So yeah, like yeah, as I said, like this whole thing for the past couple of years has just been wild. Really great learning opportunity, but I'm like really resentful whenever tell, someone tells me that <laughs> during like a process. <laughs> it's a really great time to like learn some lessons. I'm like, uh huh. <laughs> yeah, it's much easier. It's much easier to learn lessons once you've done it, and then you can kind of look back at it and go, yeah, lessons were learned. But don't tell me in the moment that I'm learning lessons. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like you can take those lessons. <laughs> so at the moment, you're you're going through and you're editing and you're doing the post production work. So. I don't want to put you on the spot, but when do you think it might be out in the world for people to see? <laughs> so I'm really hoping around May, June time, but I might be a bit optimistic about that. Um, we're working on it right now. Um, and yeah, I'm aiming for then so that I have a deadline to work to. I'm sort of someone who needs a deadline, but it may get sort of pushed slightly later, maybe a couple of months after that. But I really want it to sort of come out ASAP really um so, I want to sort of be able to share it with people and more than anything actually sort of also for the interviewees they sort of they all gave me so much of their time that I want to be able to share the reason behind why I asked them to share their time with me and their story with me and what it was all for and you know I think they got it whilst I was there but uh, I think sort of seeing it all in packaged up in a film would be sort of the icing on the cake so yeah I'm saying May June for now but could get pushed back a little bit okay I'm excited I'm excited to see it and we'll obviously share all about it when it when it when it comes out and are you you working on any other projects currently do you do you work on other projects simultaneously yeah I have to uh I wish I'd well do I wish I don't know sometimes I wish I didn't have to because it would just be nice to focus on one thing at a time um but yeah so as I mentioned there's um a film with a woman called Freddie who took on the Pennine way um and for reasons that I can't say at the moment she didn't manage to finish it at the time so she is finishing it in June um how much longer has she got to go the last two days okay so, but she's, she did it north to south. So she started in Kirkgetham and then she's ending in Edel. Mm-hmm. Um, which, if anyone has ever seen the sign in Edel that says it's the starting point of the Pennine Way, there's a typo in it. There's oh, a typo in the official sign. I feel like that really upset you. Someone had one job. It was really important. Accurate signposting people. <laughs> <laughs> awesome um, so you've got freddie's doc to to finish up yeah so there's that um and uh i do have a couple of others but i don't know if i'm allowed to say anything about them yet um, okay that's okay you can leave it with a little tease that's fine i mean i guess the most i can say is that has sabrina spoken to you at all not about this <laughs> okay <laughs> Sabrina and I in talks about like making a film together um sort That's of probably exciting. spanning over this year and next year so like big thing next year um and 
Sabrina's doing some great groundwork at the moment to see who's interested in um, sponsoring it at the moment. But um, yeah, that'll be really good. Um, oh my I'm goodness. super stoked for that. As soon as we finish this conversation, I'm clearly picking up the phone to talk to Sabrina <laughs> and find out everything about it. <laughs> I'm excited. I don't even know anything about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> calm down, Rachel. Uh, I'm conscious. That's why I'm she conscious. can't be here because she's too busy filming some B-roll for me. <laughs> Just being big time. Just being big time all over. hundred percent. So I'm, I'm conscious of time and I've, I've really taken up a lot of your time, which I really, I really appreciate you, you giving to us. I know it's, time is precious. Um, but I just wanted to ask kind of one, 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 one final question, really, which in terms of your filmmaking, your filmmaking is very much about promoting diversity, telling stories, diversity and inclusion. Black Trail Runners is all about diversity and inclusion. Is there any advice that you would give to us as Black Trail Runners um, to to do more of that work, to to, to promote more EDI equity, diversity, and inclusion? Ask Not the question you on again, the spot or anything. <laughs> Basically, what advice would you give us to as Black Trail Runners to promote diversity and inclusion? That's the question. Why am I giving you advice? You're doing a great job. <laughs> I should be asking you for advice. <laughs> And that's the soundbite. <clears throat> I mean, I appreciate. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, you need to come on one of our trail tasters. Yeah, I was thinking about what's the one that's happening in August? No, September. Um, good question. I will double check that. <laughs> Wait, Could so, be Wales? No, it's not Wales. It's near London. What's it called? Epping Forest. Is it Epping Forest? I'm just saying names of places at the moment because I, I, I don't have the calendar in front of me. Editor, please cut this out. Oh, Dunstable Downs. Dunstable. Oh, the race. Yes, the is race. It a the race? It's a race. It, it has a race within it. It is a oh, trail it. Okay. running. It is a trail running event. It's going to be yeah, a whole whole day. There are three different distances. You can do a one k, a five k, a ten k. Um. Yes, please come to that. 100%. Black to the trail. I think I looked in my calendar and was like, am I free that day? And, and actually, I can't remember what I decided. Am I free that? I'm like looking at my calendar now. Am I free that day? This is um, real time, people. Real time here. Oh, yeah. I, I put it in my diary as like a question mark. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that, if I'm being honest for it. <laughs> well, it's more because I'm a bit non-committal. <laughs> okay. Okay, fine. So, 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 Frit may or may not be at the Black Black to the Trails event in September. Um, if you Correct. are, if you are not currently signed up, listeners, please do go to blacktothetrails.co.uk and register your place. Under sixteens go free. Now that I've done that plug, Frit, <laughs> it's time for you that to plug. That was seamless. <laughs> I know no one would notice if I didn't mention the plug. Um, now it's your turn <laughs> to tell everyone listening where they can find out more about you and what you're doing and watch some of your films and, yeah, all about Frit. Uh, so first place would be Instagram. So you can find me at Frit underscore term and you can find my film studio at Passion Fruit Pictures at passion fruit pictures underscore wow i should really know that at passion fruit i'll just say it confidently at passion fruit pictures underscore um 
And uh, you can also uh, find more about me and Glyph for Pride on my website, fritandhealthy.co. And you could also check out Passion Fruit Pictures, uh, which is passionfruitpictures.co. Um, you can find out more about the films that I've made. So I've got two films out at the moment, one called Brave Enough, which is about Jo Mosley, who is all about midlife adventuring. And she became the first woman to paddleboard 162 miles between Liverpool and Ghoul. And Whoa. that film is currently on Vimeo. <laughs> did did you woe me for a reason? <laughs> 162 miles paddleboarding. My mind is blown. <laughs> it, like, I think paddleboarding is like the most serene sport that you can do. And you can travel like, you can cover like serious distance. So imagine traveling serious distance serenely. It's like amazing. But it's hard. Like, it is hard. Uh, depends where you're paddleboarding. Where are you okay. paddleboarding? I mean, it's not something that I'm doing, you know, of a weekend a lot of the time. <laughs> so I completely interrupted. Sorry. So that's one film. What's the what's the other film that you've currently got out? Uh, the other one is The Wonderless Women, which features Amira Patel um, and her mum Aisha, and it sort of is an origins film, I suppose, of her Wonderless Women Muslim hiking group. And uh, it's only a seven minute film, so it's really short, uh, but it's picked up a couple of awards in its time. So that's been really nice. Uh, that's just free to watch. So. Um, if you go to the Passion Fruit Pictures YouTube channel, then you can find it there. Or you can also find it on the BMC Women in Adventure competition from 2021, um, in which it won Best Professional Film. Woo! So, Woo! yeah, I can, those I are can a confirm, couple of places that you can find it. I can confirm that it is a beautiful film. I've seen it. And Amira was on the podcast with Sabrina and I recently. Um, yeah. You maybe want to go back and watch it again, actually. So we will put all of those links into the show notes as well to make sure that people go and check out your stuff. Thank you I'm very loving, much. I have to say that I'm loving, I'm just loving all your wordplay. Frit and Healthy for the website, Jean-Claude Van Tam, <laughs> name of the van. I mean, I feel like you've missed a trick here. Maybe this, maybe you should go into like copywriting or something because I feel like there's definite, there's scope there. Uh, yeah, but the thing is with copywriting is that I think I have to write so many more words than just the one pun that I want to make. So if there's just a job for just pun making, then I'll do that. <laughs> and pun making just purely around your name as well, I guess. <laughs> I'm more versatile than that. I reckon I could, <laughs> I reckon I could sort of move into the realms of making puns around other people's names. I mean, there's only one way to find out, isn't there? Exactly. I think, you know, dive straight in, both feet, just go for it. Yeah, cool. See you later, filmmaking. <laughs> I found a new calling. Well, Britt, thank you so much for coming on the checkpoint. It was awesome to talk to you. And thank you for being so open and, yeah, just for sharing your story with us. Thank you very much for having me on. This is probably actually one of the most uh, off-the-cuff podcast recordings I've done because it's with you. So, like, inevitably... <laughs> inevitably we will just have jokes between us um so i feel like anyone who's listened to my other podcast recordings might be like you sound slightly less polished here but it's all good you sound great you sound great you sound great and it's and it's just a conversation isn't it it's been really fun i've laughed loads and that's all that matters exactly and yeah i hope you guys if you're listening on the run or not i hope you've laughed too and have a great rest of your day 
Thank you for joining us at The Checkpoint. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and share online. Also, please remember to leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected, as it really helps our podcast to grow. Your support helps make this podcast possible. Remember, if you have any questions, get in touch with us via our Instagram page at Black Trail Runners, or if you want to join our community, please search Facebook for Black Trail Runners and connect with us.